Welcome back to the Adventist City Ministries podcast. My name is Andrew, and I have a very special guest with me. It's Pastor Marcos Torres. How are you doing, Marcos? I'm doing awesome, man. I'm excited to be here. Excited to be on this podcast. I love your intro tune, by the way. That was that was cool. So did you write that that music? Yeah, yeah. Did you go? Ah, very cool. That's yeah. awesome, man. A little, little yeah. side projects that I have. So yeah, uh, Marcos, tell us about what you're doing, where you're at, how this whole thing with coronavirus is going for you. <laughs> oh, man, this whole thing with coronavirus is going... It's going, it's going. So uh, yeah, so like you said, my name is Marcus. Um, I'm, I'm originally from Jersey. I'm a Jersey boy, um, born and raised in Newark, New Jersey, actually. And uh, my, my accent is um, a little bit all over the place because even though I'm, I'm from Jersey, I, I lived in Hawaii for four years. And then, um, you know, a lot of Californians there. So I picked a bunch of Californian from them. <laughs> um, and then I lived in Tennessee. I went to Southern, you know, so I was there for four years working at a Southern church. So I picked up words like reckon. <laughs> um, hell yeah, bro. So I'm just like, ah, by the, by the end, and my wife and I've been talking about, uh, potentially someday in the future going to London. So yeah, by the time I'm 80, man, my accent's going to be like <laughs> all over the place. But, uh, yeah, so that's, that's a little bit of me. That's where I'm from. Um, and I'm a pastor here in, in Australia right now. Uh, so I'm, I'm pastoring in Perth, WA, Western Australia, uh, three churches, a church plant and, um, two churches, one in the city and one a little bit not rural or any, and it's not even anywhere near rural, but I, I suppose you could say more of like a, like a, like a coastal type area. Um, yeah. So that's, that's it in a nutshell, I guess. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So how's your ministry experience been affected by the coronavirus and what are you doing to adjust? How has it changed for you? Yeah, man. So it has changed dramatically. And, uh, you know, at first it was kind of like, oh, this is cool. You know, like, first two weeks, maybe, you know, it's kind of like, oh, how do we adjust? How do we adapt? Let's get creative. Uh, but then, you know, like you just kind of get tired of not seeing people and being at home all the time. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, I've definitely got a bit of cabin fever, but the church is doing awesome, man. So like, you know, uh, we got all our, our, basically our whole church just went digital, just mobilized digital. Um, so all our Sabbath schools and groups, small groups, et cetera, you know, streaming sermons, everything's, uh, everything's digital. Um, so the positive aspects of this COVID-19 thing, um, if, I could, if I could split it into positive and negative would be, you know, the, the positive thing is um, probably that in this season, we are being forced to be creative and think outside of the box. Mm. And um, the things we would have probably fought against to the death just a few months ago, we are now doing. <laughs> you know the, the changes i mean the, right, the, right. you know the drastic changes we're not doing it because we don't have a choice and so to a large degree i think it's good because it's forcing us to think okay like what does communion look like when there's not three elders sitting at the front with the pastor and ladies with white gloves uncovering you know what i mean like yeah. um, and, and communion actually looks like what it looks like in the bible where it's just a meal without all the fancy stuff and you know what what does church look like without the liturgy and without the platform party or the three hymn sandwich and so I think it's good. That's the good part about it is it's forcing us to ask questions we would have been really uncomfortable, at least some of us, uncomfortable contending with just a little while ago. Uh, so that's a big positive. The negative, man, I just miss people, man. I miss being around. I'm a, I'm a, I wouldn't say I'm an extrovert, extrovert, but I kind of like an amnivert, you know, like I'm in the middle. Um, so I'm not like a loud extrovert, but I definitely don't like being alone. <laughs> that's for sure. So that's that's the hard part, man. I've been, I've been telling uh, some of my friends and family that after all of this, there's going to be a, a kind of zombie apocalypse, but it's going to be, it's all going to be extroverts roaming the streets. Yes. 
Hugs. I love it. Hugs. I love it. <laughs> we need physical touch. So people looking for that. It, it'll, it'll, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens when everything opens up again. Well, I mean, it's yeah. going to be gradual, of course, but yeah. you know, once you're allowed to, <laughs> once that social distancing isn't such a, a major concern anymore. Yeah. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is because we've been going through Daniel on uh, previous episodes. Sometimes we're very data driven with prophecy and it can tend to turn people off or it, and it doesn't get to the heart of our you know, everyday issues. Okay, this is nice, these dates. And so I was looking for something that, you know, how do we, how do we put the gospel back into Daniel? And that's when I came across your book, your work that you're doing. And I thought you had a really great way of connecting to the current generation, you know, the, the mind that is the, the nuns, uh, people who don't go to church, unchurched people, post-Christian. So can you explain a little bit about, you know, how you tackle things like the judgment in Daniel and how do you make it not scary? Yeah. Well, I think it's, I kind of have to do a little bit of a backstory. Part of the, part of the journey of answering this question is I almost have to take the journey differently depending on, you know, like if I'm in an Adventist context, a little different than when I'm in a secular context. So in a secular context, I can just sort of start from scratch and work my way forward. Whereas with an Adventist context, I feel like there's some unlearning. Mm. <laughs> there's, some, there's, some, there's some unlearning. There's some backward steps we need to take. But um, the, basic prob- the basic premise here is, or, or basic story here is, uh, when I was at Southern, I got my, um, the- I studied theology rather at, at Southern Adventist University. And when I was there, I had a studies in Daniel class. And when the studies in Daniel class started, um, one of the things that the professor, Don Leatherman, was the same, or is his name, he's still with us, uh, awesome guy. Um, and one of the things that he um, mentioned was we we're going to have to do a research paper as part of the class. And um, I immediately knew I wanted to do my research paper on the doctrine of the judgment as, as explored in sort of the apocalyptic milieu of Daniel. And, um, and the reason why I wanted to do that is because I wasn't convinced that we had a, a, a good understanding of what was happening there. You know, I wasn't convinced that the, this sort of doctrine of the judgment, as you see in Daniel, was was even there um and so i went on this journey you know looking at daniel eight fourteen, which is kind of where the whole thing kind of blows up mm-hmm. and then how it compares to daniel 9 and stitching all that together in the timeline so anyways i actually told my wife um i said to her i'm gonna do this paper on the the judgment in daniel and if i cannot find the judgment in daniel i gotta leave the adventist church because this is like one of the core aspects of our identity you know Um, right and i just felt like and i know you know some people are like oh you can disagree with something and still be part of the church and you know there's probably you know there's a truth to that i'm just saying how i felt at the time um where i felt like if if i if i don't see this there then i kind of have to pack my bags and go somewhere else because this is just as far as i was concerned too central to the identity um so anyways so that, that's how serious I was, man. Like, I was like, I wasn't convinced. I had a few friends that tried to give me Bible studies. They confused me more. Um, <laughs> and I said, I'm going to hunker down. I'm going to figure this out. So I read the critics, you know, Teresa Beam, Rats Laugh, and a few others. I can't remember all the names. Um, and then I read some of the, um, you know, proponents. Um, you know, you had guys like George Knight and William Shea and Martin Weber, you know, uh, just different, different ideas. And, and of course, I'm, the whole time I'm sort of wrestling with the biblical text as well sort of in, in a more like a, a naked framework and trying to see like, how does this piece together? Like what is, mm-hmm. what stories told here? Um, and long story short, cause that's not really the question you're asking. I'm just laying the foundation here. Long story short, by the time I was done, I was like, okay, the judgment's definitely there. And it's actually kind of really cool. Like, 
and, and I got to the point where I could explain it really easily. And, um, you know, it just became one of my favorite themes. Uh, but then a few years later, um, I started to realize something. I started to realize a trend in my Bible studies as I taught the judgment to people. And it's essentially what you mentioned earlier, that by the time I got to the judgment with people, um, it just became something that you would find really interesting if you had a, an a priori reason to explore it, right? So like if, if, if you had some sort of commitment to unraveling this intricate and complex, you know, conceptualization in Daniel 8, 14, going into Daniel 9, like if, if mm-hmm. you had some sort of prior commitment, then you could hang in there through all the complexity and the nuances. Right. So basically if you were a Bible nerd, then yeah, you would yeah, be committed to that. Yeah. Exactly. But not everybody's yeah. like that. Not everybody's like that. And what I noticed was most of my students, and look, this isn't a toot your own horn um, thing. I just, I have to lay it down as clearly as possible so that you, you know, listeners can get the sense of what I'm talking about. Like I'm fairly charismatic. You know, I can, I can, I can preach in a way that holds people's attention. I can teach in a way that holds people's attention, but it wasn't happening with Daniel 8.14. <laughs> I was losing people. Eyes were glazing over. And I'm like, and I'm teaching with excitement and energy and passion, you know? And, and eyes are just glazing over and literally one study after like the very next study, like people already forgotten 95% of what I taught when it came to the judgment. And, and so I was like, man, you know, I'm not saying that this is false. I believe it's true, but there's gotta be a way of communicating what's going on here to people who do not have a prior, a prior commitment that, you know, makes this idea interesting for them. You know, like basically how can we communicate it in a way that speaks to their present experience uh, so mm-hmm. that the judgment or the, the unraveling of the judgment in Daniel doesn't necessitate, you know, some sort of prior theological baggage that you're trying to unravel. You know, it's something that you can encounter fresh and be like, oh, yeah, this, this speaks meaning into the human experience. Right. You know, it's like, how do we make this to, to, to put it in sort of plain language? How do we make this relevant? Um, yeah, how do you, how do we make this relevant for people? That was and and the thing is like my ministry, the thing that I love doing the most is is navigating the spiritual journey with secular Western postmodern meta modern people. You know, like that's one of the reasons why I came to Australia was because I knew like Australia is super secular. This is the country where you tell people I'm a pastor and they look at you and ask what's that. You know, so I was like, yeah, I want to do ministry there. But I was just like struggling with this particular aspect to, to connect it meaningfully to people. And it almost felt like first you have to be an Adventist. Then you have to get bogged into all the weird arguments that we have as Adventists that secular people just don't find any meaning in whatsoever. Mm. And then mm. someone's ready to be like, oh, yeah, the judgment in Daniel, that makes sense because it answers questions that, you know, you guys are asking, but I'm not asking if that makes any sense. Right. Yeah. So our, our identity is largely wrapped up in our interpretation of the judgment. And if you don't have that uh, preconceived notion of its importance in our yeah. identity, then, you know, you're not going to come out with the same conclusions. Uh, yeah. And, and so that's why there's, there's other churches that have other interpretations. Let's keep on going here. So how do we, how do you then present it to somebody of a secular mindset who has no connection to Christianity. Yeah. No, a really good question, man. So the first thing I had to do, like I said earlier, was I had to unlearn. And, and let me make something really clear here. By unlearn, I'm, I'm not suggesting that the sort of the historic development of the doctrine is false or erroneous. Uh, I actually don't really have any camaraderie with people who take that route. Um, I, I believe that, you know, what you read in, um, in the testimonies, what you read historically, you know, 
the the sort of legalist framework aside because that's all a bunch of baloney but you know if you look at it in its its basic essence you know in harmony with the gospel i think we've been right and and i think for the most part we've we've got a really good framework there what i came to realize though was that that framework was the raw materials upon which we can construct something of meaning to different places different times different people um and so it's kind of like when you look at jesus you know like when we preach the gospel Nine times out of 10, when a Christian preaches the gospel, he will use the framework of being born again, mm-hmm. right? Like that's the framework that nine times out of 10, we go, we run to the born again framework. You got to be born again. And the interesting point to note is that in the gospels, Jesus only ever uses that framework one time, right? That's it. He never uses it again. He uses it one time and he uses it with Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee who believed that because he was Jewish and he was born of Abraham, that his natural birth entitled him to heaven. And so Jesus framed the gospel to, to speak directly to his experience as a human being. Actually, your birth as a child of Abraham doesn't qualify you. You have to be born again, mm-hmm. right? But then in the very next chapter, when he sees the woman at the well, he doesn't tell her to be born again. He tells her, I'm the living water, right? He reframed the gospel to speak to the experience. When he spoke to the rich young ruler, he didn't say be born again. He said, sell everything you have. It's so uncomfortable the way that Jesus frames the gospel to the rich young ruler. It almost feels kind of legalistic. You know, it's like, no, don't say that. That's not cool. (laughs) But he's framing it to meet the experience of his listener. And Paul did the same thing. You know, the Athenians and and Mars Hill and, you know, and the Jews, different approaches. Right. And so this is essentially the position that I took was like, we have the raw materials and they're good, but how can we reframe the doctrine of the judgment to actually speak meaning to people. That, that means we have to make the, the gospel more adaptable and we have to, mm. we can speak into people's lives where they're at. And so in order to do that, we actually have to know them and, yeah. <laughs> and, and form relationships <laughs> with them. We just can't give them this prepackaged, okay, yeah. you know, kind of sinner's prayer that yeah. we are sometimes used to. And yeah, yeah so that, this is interesting. Yeah. So, and, and I would say, um, and this is the key point as well, it's not about making the gospel adaptable so much. Um, it's about recognizing that it is inherently adaptable. Um, and so rather than making it adaptable, what we're doing is we're getting out of the way, right? Because we are the ones who constrain it, right? We are the ones who put it into a formula and we, we, we repress it into that formula. And so it's like, actually, the gospel doesn't work that way. If you just let it loose, it's naturally adaptable to the different contexts and situations in which it inhabits. Um, and so this is ex- exactly the experience I have with the judgment. So to answer your question more directly, because obviously I don't have time um, or we don't have time in this sit down to sort of reproduce the entire, <laughs> we'll right. be here for like five hours, you know? Uh, Cause like I said, there was a lot of unlearning um, to do there, but um, the basic idea that I came to is I came back to the judgment and I said, all right, like what is, what is this saying to the human experience? And I read it again and again and again. I said, like, what, what exactly is being communicated here? Like, what is the most basic story? If we strip away all of the complex things that almost require a PhD, right? If we just strip it down and we, we turn it or, or, or we discover, rather, the narrative that is communicating, the simple storyline. The, the main thing, to make a long story short, that I arrived at wasn't actually Daniel 8.14. It was Daniel 8.13. But just a verse before verse 14. And what became meaningful there is that in Daniel 8, 13, there is a being in heaven. And, you know, just to put it in context, this is, you know, there's like this, this vision uh, that Daniel has of the age of the church empire and the injustice and the oppression and, 
you know, the, the, the violence that, that was perpetrated by the church empire. And, and, and Daniel is seeing this unraveling of social and humanitarian injustice and, you know, again, religious oppression, persecution, all, all of these different aspects of, of, of human power, right, of tyranny. And as this is unfolding and this sort of storyline comes into view, there's a being in heaven who asks another being, how long? And I mean, I mean, the question is a little longer than that, you know, how long until, you know, blah, 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 blah. It just goes on, you know, with the whole trampling of the sanctuary and all that. But I just, I got sucked into those two words, how long? And that's when I, I started to sort of like things started to open up because what I realized was like the question, how long is not a question you ask when your presence experience is desirable, right? right? The question, how long is the kind of question that you ask when the present experience has reached sort of like a, a, um, a threshold that you just can't take anymore. Mm. So you're like, you don't ask how long when you're in the middle of a date with your wife, like how long is this going to go? I mean, I hope not, you know, <laughs> that would be tragic yeah, if you're asking how long is this going to go? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of this date. Um, and you don't ask how long when you're in the middle of a vacation. Um, so then what is the kind of context in which you ask how long? You, you ask how long, you know, you can look at silly scenarios like you, you hate your job and, you know, you just like, oh, how long until, you know, or when you're at school as a kid, you're like, how long until it's time to go home? You know, it's when the present experience is undesirable. Um, and, and this is common sense. There's nothing, you know, there's, there's nothing grand about that. I'm looking at the LA 13 and I'm seeing that what is being depicted there is that these beings in the vision, these angelic, you know, sentient beings are expressing suffering, right? Mm -hmm. How long is the kind of question that a slave asks after being whipped by the master and he's laying down on his chattel at night wondering like, you know, how long do I have to endure this agony? You know, you think of the Israelites in Exodus and, and you think of Habakkuk, right? The book of Habakkuk, you know, one of the very first verses in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is crying out to God. The Babylonian invasions are taking place, all this injustice and bloodshed. And Habakkuk's initial question, I think it's in verse two of chapter of, of the book of Habakkuk, chapter one, he says, how long must I cry violence and you don't listen? Like, how long, you know, or, or you go to the book of Revelation with the souls under the altar, you know, how long until you avenge? So there's this sense in which the question itself assumes a state of suffering. The problem that I encounter with that is that generally speaking, when it comes to the book of Daniel, um, many Adventists read the book from a position of Western privilege. Mm -hmm. Like we're not, we're not familiar. We, we might be familiar with personal suffering, but we're not familiar with, you know, with uh, um, systemic suffering, not, not to the degree that people in other times and other um, countries might be because we, we live a fairly privileged life. And so there's a sense in which you can read through that question and never stop and think about the suffering that's being expressed there. Right. Because, you know, we don't really suffer systemically to the same degree. Well, not everyone. Obviously, there's different, you know, groups of people within the U.S. who suffer systemically as well. But I'm speaking more in generalities here. The kind of people who are particularly, um, un, you know, sort of unraveling the book of Daniel, it's not something that we are familiar with. You know, like we don't know what it's like to be Jews in the first century who are being persecuted by Romans and their land is taxed. And if you can't pay the tax, they take your kids and you know, and you never see your kids again because they got sold to slavery. And, you know, like we, we have no clue what that's like. That's systemic, you know, that's deeply embedded suffering. Um, and so this question then that we see in Daniel 8, 13 is so easy to read by it when you come from a position of privilege because you don't recognize the cry. And so that's the first thing that stood out to me. It was like, okay, so this question mm -hmm. is coming from a place of suffering, right? There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's sort of like a parallel suffering in heaven that's being unfolded here. Which means that the answer to the question is interacting with suffering. You know, Daniel 8.14 is the answer to the, to the question of Daniel 8.13. And, and what that said to me was the answer to the question 
must embed itself in suffering because the question itself is a question that is asked in the context of suffering. And that's the bit that I feel we've always missed. Like we don't really see the suffering. And, and, and so I kind of walked away with the conviction that as Adventists, um, our identity is generally you know, rooted in Daniel 8.14, the answer to the question. Um, I walked away with the conviction that our identity needs to be rooted in, not in the answer to the question, but in the question itself. Right. And it's like, instead of rushing past the question, just sit with it for a while and, and let the agony of the question itself define what it is you're going to say to the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the tragedy of historic Adventism. And I use that phrase loosely because historic Adventism has a lot of beautiful things. Um, but I use it, I use it loosely because I'm, I'm referring particularly to the tendency within us, um, going back generations, to be the people with the answers. Like we always have to have the right answer. And, and we see ourselves as people with the right answer all the time. And there's nothing wrong with having something meaningful to say. But at least for me, I'm feeling like I don't just want to have the right answer for the sake of having the right answer. I, I need to actually understand the question. I need to understand what's in people's heart. You know? right. I need to inhabit. And so Daniel 8.14 then became to me a, a, a story of how God interacts with suffering. And, and to a large degree... What this did was it opened up the whole concept of judgment to me. It took it out of the religio-centric framework and placed it back into the lap of humanity, right? It took it out of the doctrinal nerdiness and said, actually, this isn't just for the theologically astute. This is for everyone. Like, here's, here's, here, here is a question that everyone asks, you know, how long? The, the experience of suffering, you know, as Nietzsche said, you know, that life is suffering. We all suffer. Um, and so here is. Here is a framework, a narrative, a storyline that's unfolding in Daniel that speaks directly to the human experience of suffering. Um, and in a nutshell, that's kind of like where things started to reframe themselves out of the religio-centric concerns that we tend to have and into the human, the existential concerns that are being addressed inherently in the vision itself. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of a, a, a in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that because... Yeah, we, everybody experiences suffering in some degree. Yeah. And like you said, we, we don't entirely have the, the context of that here in the West with, with all of the uh, accesses that we have, but yet we can still understand it because it's something that, you know, we all feel pain. We all feel desire, um, want. And to me, that makes it much more uh, accessible to, to people who are outside of, of our specific religious experience. Um, so now that we've kind of have this uh, reframing of of the judgment, how does then God kind of use that as a as a way to judge as a, as a measuring stick? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I work through in the book, one of the things I work through is how do we keep this narrative, the answer in Daniel eight fourteen, how do we keep it simple enough? that everyone can grasp it and understand it. That's not to say that you don't go back later on and build on that with the more deep concepts. You know, you can have a, a book on salvation that's as thin as steps to Christ or as thick as a systematic, you know, <laughs> a systematic theology with like 300 pages, you know. Um, and so one of the questions that I wrestle with is like, once we identify the meaning, the storyline is being addressed, you're like, how do we keep it simple? 
Um, and part of that, again, and here's where the, like most of the book that I wrote, like once you understand that the, the framework of the doctrine itself and how you can reframe it into the experience of suffering, and you share that with someone, it's like super simple. Like it doesn't take a whole book to, you know, <laughs> to explore that. Most of the book is the unlearning. Um, it's the simplifying. It's the, it's, you know, it's, it's the addressing the, the preconceived notions that we bring to, to this conversation. Um, because once you get that out of the way, the rest of it's actually fairly simple. And so I'll give you one aspect of it because I had this experience with a, uh, with a friend of mine who had just come out of rehab, um, really secular guy, uh, born and raised, you know, very secular and um, had just come out of rehab and had some really bad addictions. And so he was at that point in his life where, you know, the accolades of life had let him down enough that he realized, okay, maybe there is something worth exploring beyond the now. Right. And so he was open to spiritual things and, um, but the thing that frustrated him was Christians were always speaking to him in a language he didn't understand. You know, people would say, oh, God's going to use you to, you know, you're, you're going you're gonna to preach the gospel. He didn't even know what the word gospel meant, you know, or, you know, like things like that. Like people were using Christian ease, you know, the, the Christian jargon. And he just had no clue. what. And, and it frustrated him so much that when I met with him, he was actually telling me, like, I think I'm actually done. Like, I am think I'm done with this whole church thing. Um, like, I believe God is real and and all that but i just i don't fit into this man like i just cannot connect um and i understood where he was coming from so one of one of the aspects that we talked about you know i i went into this concept of the judgment and the judgment being you know something that emerges out of the experience of suffering and one of the variables that emerges from that is that god is in the judgment god is he is reversing the empire of man right there is there is an aspect of it in which god you know is is bringing human empire into judgment and so the question is like what what for like what what are, what are the things that are being what are what are the things that are unfolding there and and one of the things that's unfolding there which is the the single one that i highlighted with him is that when god reverses human empire he naturally reverses the effects of human empire one of those effects is suffering right like suffering isn't just something that's out there that's caused out there like it's, it happens from within, right? Like we are the perpetrators of suffering to a large degree. And so, you know, I was, I was talking to him about this whole like sort of reversal of human empire, you know, like God is actually in the process of restoring everything back to its original design. And what this means is human empire at this moment is being weighed and is touched. And that includes the church, right? Because the church empire is the greatest, is the greatest empire that ever lived in terms of, you know, um, opulence and power and injustice. And, but what I came back to was, here's, here's what that means in a practical sense, is that if God is in the process of reversing human empires, in the process of reversing suffering, then there's a sense in which he's calling us to participate in that reversal, right? And if he's calling us to participate in that reversal, what, the, what this means on a very practical, right, a very pragmatic level, is that one of the things that judgment is calling us to is to live each day, orient our lives each day to reverse suffering. Because God is in the act of reversing it for good. And so we participate, we can participate with him. We can say, God, I know you're deconstructing the empires of this world. So rather than me getting comfortable here and living for my own mini empire, let me join you in your work, right? Let me be an agent of reversal of suffering. Let me live each day and just do something. So, you know, it doesn't have, you don't have to be Mother Teresa, right? Like just do something simple each day that reverses suffering in this world. And when I said that to him, like his eyes just shot open, you know, and what I find is if you're a person who has grown up in a sort of a religio-centric context, 
that may not seem so cool. But for him, you know, he's a secular guy. Um, all the religio-centric arguments have done is drive him further away from wanting to explore God. And as soon as I explained to him, like, what, here's one of the things God wants to do in your life right now. He, he wants to use you as an agent of reversal, right? And I didn't come up with that term. I heard it from Nathan Brown, um, and he heard it from someone else. So I don't know. Someday we'll figure out where the original source of agents of reversal come from. But once you be an agent of reversal, right, to live each day with, with orienting your life toward the reversal of suffering, and like his eyes shot open and he was like, wow, he was like, yes, I can do that. Like, if that's what God wants to do in my life, I can get down with that. That was his, his reply to me. And essentially what he recognized at that moment was what Christians have been saying all along, right? Things like this world's not our home. Things like Jesus is coming soon. Things like, you know, um, God is going to establish his kingdom on earth. You know, Daniel 2, all the kingdoms of the, of the earth will be disintegrated. One kingdom, eternal kingdom that will never end. But now he understood that if the kingdoms of this world are being deconstructed, right, if they're being reversed, if they're, if they're, if they're, going, if they're headed toward their ultimate annihilation, then rather than living each day for the perpetuation of those kingdoms, right, I should live each day participating in their deconstruction, in their reversal. And that means actively choosing each day to reverse suffering for someone else. And however that looks, like I said, it doesn't have to be dramatic. You don't have to be, you know, a philanthropist and you know, who donates millions of dollars to charity. It can be really, really simple things, but you begin to orient your life in that direction and saying, I want to be, I want to join God in reversing suffering in this world. And, and that becomes a really meaningful aspect of the judgment that now actually interacts with the human experience, right? It's not just this abstract idea that we sit down and, you know, so many times, um, even when it comes to like the, 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 the really complex explorations of the judgment in Daniel, we kind of sit down at the end of it and we're like, okay, um, but you know what? At the end of the day, if you believe in Jesus, that's all that matters. And the rest of this is, eh, you know, it's neither here nor there. Um, and I've heard so many people and I've asked it myself. It's like, okay, that makes sense. I get it. 2300 days, 1844, you know, the, uh, all, the year principle and, and, and Yom Kippur and, and the lamb and all the type of, like, I get it all. But really, why does it actually matter at all? You know, like I believe in Jesus, I'm, 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 my salvation is secure, preach the gospel. Like, what does this add to the conversation at all? Um, and so what I have found is by actually going on this experience of saying, well, let's step away from the academic, nerdy, religio-centric arguments for a moment and just look at what does this say to humanity? That's when you begin to find, you know, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, hey, here is the answer. I'm just suggesting here is a answer, right? Here is a process. Here is an approach, one that I believe of many in which the, this doctrine can be reframed to speak meaningfully to the human experience. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one aspect of it. You know, obviously I can't reproduce everything in, <laughs> um, right. without, without, uh, without going into a, a long, long, long discussion, but um, yeah, yeah, I, um, as, as you're talking, I, it brought to my mind, uh, John three nineteen, where it talks about the judgment and Jesus says, mm -hmm. uh, this is the judgment that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than mm -hmm. light. And, and then it goes on from there. But yeah, it's just the fact that you think about who Jesus is and his mere presence alone, his actions were healing others, were, mm -hmm. were letting them know that they were loved, that he cared for them, that he wanted uh, better things for them in their life and to be mm -hmm. a you know, whole people. And so just that presence alone and mm -hmm. in the way that he reversed suffering it shows that that is purely what 
the gospel is. And so when you talk about this whole process of uh, reversing suffering in Daniel, I really see how Jesus Mm. is the answer to that. And um, yeah, I'm just wondering your thoughts on, you know, let's connect this more to to Jesus. How do we, how do we then present the person of Jesus Mm. to people like your friend you were mentioning? Yeah, absolutely. A big part of this is recognizing that there is a trend in the entire book of Daniel. And the trend in the whole book is that from the very first chapter, and it sort of just repeats every single chapter, is that there is a war between two kingdoms unfolding. From chapter one, you know, Babylon conquers Israel. You have two kingdoms there. And those two kingdoms are really archetypes of the kingdom of God versus the empires of man. Um, Israel was meant to be the kingdom of God, obviously, and, and Babylon continues to represent this sort of rebellion and confusion and, and, and the empire of man. And again, if you go to Habakkuk and you read Habakkuk's visions about Babylon, you know, it talks about the substrate of Babylon, you know, it's this, this empire that, that rises to the peak of human achievement on the bodies of the innocent that it murders. And this is human empire. All human empires are like this. You cannot construct a human empire on the earth without taking advantage of someone. It's impossible because that's how human empire unfolds. That's how it thrives. Even the greatest nation in the world with the best human, res- human rights record, you know, um, arguably in the history of humanity, right? The, the United States of America is built on slavery and you can't get away from that, you know? So there's a sense in which it's like even the best that we have to offer in terms of human governance and empire is built on the same substrate as Babylon. You've got to take advantage of someone. You've got to spill blood. It's the only way that it can be done. Um, And so what Daniel is introducing us to is this other kingdom that functions on an entirely different set of pillars. And this is what we see in Daniel 2, right? And it's also what we see in Daniel 1. We see the kingdom of God versus the empire of men repeating itself consistently. We see it in Daniel 3 with the, you know, the worship of the statue and the, you know, religious tyranny and oppression. We see it in Daniel 4 with the, the, the grand tree that's cut down by heaven, right? We see it in Daniel 5 with Belshazzar and his kingdom being taken. God took it from him and gave it to another, right? There's, there's the sense in which God is at war with the empires of men over and over again, every, every chapter in Daniel. And you get to Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and it's just the same theme. It's just repeating itself. Like the empires of men are amassing themselves to, to, you know, to, to thrive and to grow and to reach the summit of, of, of human opulence. And then the kingdom of God comes along and smashes them, you know, like every time. And this kingdom is built on a completely different substrate. It's built on mercy. It's built on love. It's built on other centeredness. Right. And, and so one of the things in, in this experience is we get to Daniel eight fourteen and we talk about this deconstruction and this judgment and, you know, like, we talk about like, okay, so God is reversing the empires of this world, but what exactly is the kingdom that he's bringing into the world? What does his kingdom look like? And, and this is a question I love asking people because I, I, I tend to, um, I, I just love the, the, when people's gears are spinning, the look on their face is awesome. Um, and so I say, look, if you want to know what Babylon is like as an empire, look no further than its king. Go to, again, go to Habakkuk. What was his king doing? Oh, he was taking houses that weren't his. He was getting people drunk so he could gaze at their nakedness, right? Um, <laughs> he was, uh, you know, it even, it, even gives, it even charges him with ecological crimes, right? He destroyed the trees of Lebanon and made all the animals afraid. Like, <laughs> this is a description of the king of Babylon, right? So if you want to know what Babylon is like as a nation, look no further than its king. If you want to know what Medo-Persia is like as a nation, look no further than its king. Same thing with Greece. Same thing with Rome. Same thing with the church, right? Look no further than, than those who are at the peak 
those who who are able to amass all of the you know prestige that comes from being in control. Look no further than them if you want to know what those empires are like. But it's the same principle as applied to the kingdom of God. If you want to look, if you want to know what makes the kingdom of God different to the kingdoms of this world, look no further than the king of the kingdom of God. And who is that king? It's Christ. So what was Christ like? Right? So now we're not we're not talking abstract anymore. We're talking human languages. Like what was Jesus like? Like, if you want to know what the kingdom of God mm-hmm. is like, look no further than its king. So what was he like? You know, and we, we begin this conversation and, you know, like, it's amazing. The, the types of things that secular people say about Jesus is mind-blowing because it's not the kinds of things they say about Christians. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> what was Jesus like? Oh, man, merciful, kind, gentle. I mean, some people, you know, who have a, a, a chip on their shoulder will say some weird things. But for the most part, people recognize the beauty of the legacy of Jesus. And then you ask them, like, what was it? What are Christians like? And the whole conversation is <laughs> like judgmental, cruel, bigoted, you know, anyways. So you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, look no further than his king. And, and, and once you begin to unravel the personhood of Jesus, the character of Jesus, you can get a glimpse of like, this is what his kingdom is going to be like. The weak and the poor and the dispossessed and, and the ostracized are welcomed. It's like the outcasts of society are, are they have a home, you know? You, you see Jesus when, when he clears the temple. And, um, you know, I, I often bring them to that because there's a sense of the tent sanctuary being cleansed, you know, in, in Daniel 8, 14, we talk about that at length, you know, but I use the simple narrative markers to explain it rather than going into Leviticus, you know, like, please don't go straight to Leviticus, guys. You, know? <laughs> you can get there later on. I'm not saying don't go there, but, you know, go there later. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at stories, you know, like Jesus cleansing the temple. It's like, well, what was Jesus actually doing? It was an act of, it was an act of humanitarian justice. Right. It was an act of, again, I know this is a loaded term depending on who's using it, but I'll use it. Um, it, it was an act of social justice when he was doing. And, you know, when, when the merchants had left, the, the text tells us who, who came in. You know, it was the lame. It was the poor. It was the people who were ostracized by those in power. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's a sense in which this is what the judgment is about. Right. The judgment isn't, you know, like this giant scary thing where God's sitting in heaven with a magnifying glass looking for excuses to keep people out, right? The judgment is an experience in which God is bringing in those who you would normally expect to not be, those who are not at the center of human empire, right? Those who are on its, those who are on its margins because they're ostracized, because they don't belong, because they're not good enough, you know? Mm-hmm. Those who don't have the wealth and the network to defend themselves, that you can take advantage of them. The judgment brings these people smack into the center of God's kingdom and says, this is for you. And so there's a sense in which like, this is screaming humanitarian justice. And, and, and part of that exploration for me, and, and this is where I think it gets extremely painful. And, and this is more in terms of when I'm, I'm speaking to Adventists. Like, here's where it gets extremely painful. Because, you know, I'll have some Adventists who will say to me, oh, you know, the way we've understood the judgment, uh, it's fine. There's no problem with it. And I'm like, look, I, I agree. Like, I'm not deconstructing it. Um, in any way, shape, or form. You know, I'm, I'm not one of those critics who, who's trying to do that. What I'm saying is, is there something we've missed? And if not in our theological academic papers, is there something we've missed in our conduct? Because think of it this way. The kingdoms of this world are being deconstructed. And God is reversing the impact of empire. He's reversing injustice. He's reversing suffering. And that calls us to be a part of that reversal, right? You're either a part of the reversal or you continue to perpetuate the injustice of empire. Like you, you can't do both. But it calls us to be a part of that reversal. And for me, the most painful part of it is when you look at the history of Adventism, um, Adventism was to a large degree complicit in Jim Crow, right? 
And it's like, we have this message, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, we have this message that says God is deconstructing the empires of this world. You know what that means? That means he's deconstructing the United States of America, right? It means he's deconstructing, you know, all of them. It's not just the, oh, it's the communists. It's all of them. There's, there's no good empire. You know, like there's no kingdom on this world that reflects the heart of God. He's deconstructing all of them. And it's like, if he's deconstructing them, then we ought to be really careful to, to what degree we ally ourselves with them. And it's tragic when you read the history of Adventism and Jim Crow, right, right. where we perpetuated the racial inequality of Jim Crow. Even though we have this message that, hey, God is, you know, God is judging, right? Not in the sort of like religiocentric sense, but God is deconstructing the injustice of human empire. And so what do we do? We go ahead and we perpetuate it. You go to, you know, you go to, you go to, you know, you go to Germany and it's, it's tragic. The Adventist church was complicit with Nazi Germany, you know, not, not every Adventist, of course, I don't want to, you know, sort of yeah. make an, a dramatic theatrical statement, but there is a large degree to which the Adventist church was complicit with Nazi Germany to the point of actually handing Jews over, you know, and, and it's like, well, how do you like, wait a minute, something is missing here. You know, um, and, and, and you see this, you see this over and over again, you know, apartheid in South Africa, um, you know, everywhere you go, you, you see the sense in which the church joins hands with the injustice of the age and becomes complicit in the injustice of the age. And for me, one of the, the central tenets of this whole concept of the judgment is that if God is deconstructing the age, he's deconstructing the empires, then what are we doing allying ourselves to them in, in, you know, when, when we ally ourselves to these ideologies and these frameworks and these, you know, and, and the tragedy at times is, you know, like I, was, I grew up Adventist and we talk about the judgment a lot, but it's, it's so religio-centric that it misses the point, you know, so, so like, you know, for lack of a better phrase, we're so conservative about it, we, we missed the big picture. Because when we talked about the judgment, it was like, oh, the judgment is going on in heaven. So make sure you dress right and make sure you don't eat this and yeah. make sure you don't drink that and don't go to a movie theater because, you know, the judgment's happening, right? We're doing all that. And it's like, where is the Adventist voice speaking truth to racial inequality? You know, where is the Adventist voice speaking truth to the injustice of Nazi Germany? And, you know, one of the sad things is we may be the first ones to raise our voice against what we perceive to be the dangerous theology of Karl Barth, the liberal theologian. Um, and I believe it was him who wanted to demythologize scripture. And we'll be the first ones to raise our voice against Karl Barth, you know, and then the, the, the liberal theology of Karl Barth. Man, Karl Barth was one of the only pastors alongside Dietrich Bonhoeffer who stood against the Nazis. Right? So it's like, let's hold off our arrogant judgment a little bit and recognize that we're missing something. Right. So what I'm getting out of this is that, you know, connecting it to the gospel in some of our earlier episodes, because our, our first season, we really digested the gospel. And so to connect it to all of that, what I'm seeing is that what it looks like when we live out our Christian experience is that we know that God is living inside of us. We've, we've had an experience with him and by allowing him to, to be in our lives, he's naturally going to do the things that he loves to do helping other people, uh, being there for them, all those qualities that you talked about, uh, mercy, compassion. And, and the judgment is not something we necessarily, the, the judgment of, of this empire of man is not something that we necessarily actively do, 
sometimes, but it, it's just the, the result of us naturally living out what we believe. And some people that, that just rubs them the wrong way. And, and the result is this, uh, this conflict of uh, conscience and other people see, Hey, I don't want you to look better than me, you know? <laughs> and so the very presence of good casts out that evil or it exposes it. And, and that doesn't have to be something you strive to do. It's just a natural result of living out uh, the Christian experience. So, you know, we're, we're going through this, this whole ordeal with coronavirus and uh, you know, here in the States, we also had, you know, storms and especially in the South, there were tornadoes recently and, uh, you know, I'm seeing friends post about, about it all. And so there's, there's a lot of opportunities to, to help those who are suffering right now. So what do you think is the most effective way that we can to reach out to the suffering right now? Yeah, that's a really good question, man. I, I wouldn't say that there's one, you know, there's a diversity of ways and depending on the particular context that you're in, you know, some, some ways are going to be better than others. And what makes the scenario so tricky is the fact that, you know, service to a large degree is incarnational you're you're in there with people whereas right now we kind of can't be you know so <laughs> like to to a large degree the very act of incarnation itself is being blocked which which limits the amount of, of things we can do now obviously there are things we can do and there are things that people are doing you know i've seen um some really cool stuff and and it was i think it was yeah it was ben lundquist who, who shared recently that he's seen more creativity from the church in the last few weeks than he has in the last 10 years. Yeah. So. <laughs> I always joke with people that, you know, we've, everybody's catching up now. We're only 10 years behind now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I'm seeing things like people saying, Hey, let's start zoom groups, mm -hmm. you know, where we can actually connect with people in a safe way who are struggling with loneliness and depression and anxiety during this period of time. Um, and let's create a space that, you know, obviously is safe, but then we can connect and we sort of broaden that out and we invite our friends and we invite our neighbors, you know, and, and I'm seeing people drop things in boxes in their neighborhood saying, look, if you need help, if you're lonely, if you're elderly, if you're at risk, you need me to go get some food for you. You know, you need me to do X, Y, Z, you know, there's people who are doing that and there's all kinds of things that are happening. Um, and I, I think to a large degree, you know, like I said, it depends on where you are, like here in Perth, for example, um, the situation is nowhere near as dramatic as it is in New York. You know, like New York is just bad, you know, like so bad. And like here in purpose a little bit, you know, it's kind of like, okay, we've had about 500 something cases and it looks like they've got it generally under control. The hospitals aren't, you know, overwhelmed anymore. And they're looking at like, they're starting to have the conversation of bouncing back now. Like, okay, what does it look like to bounce back? Um, you know, so obviously the opportunities here are going to be different. They're going to be, you know, more open than they would be in New York. So I think there's a degree to which we have to, do the absolute best that we can with the conditions that we're in. But it brings me to this next point that I think is super key. Um, something to really remember. Um, there's, there's a text where Jesus says that we you know, ought to work when the sunlight is, when the day is out because the night is coming where no man can work. And one of the things that I've discovered throughout this season is that even when you've put your best foot forward, it's just not the same. Like, even when you've put your best foot forward in this season, it's simply not the same. You can do some great stuff, and I see some amazing things happening. But there's nothing that can replace incarnational ministry. You know, there's nothing that can replace being there with people. And, and, and what that has spoken to me is, you know, Jesus saying the night is coming where no man can work. And I don't believe the night is here, but I believe we're getting a kind of like a sample 
<laughs> we're getting a night yeah. sample, you know? Definitely. And it's just making me realize like when this thing lightens up and we can get back to work, man, we need to get to work. Because if this is a sample of what the night is like, where you cannot work, where your best efforts are still minuscule compared to what we could have done, say, a year ago, you know, it just makes me realize, like, when our churches get back, and I had an interview with Ivor Myers uh, this week that I published this week where we talked about this, like, when your church gets back, this is the time to, to really stop playing the church game, stop with the, you know, the, 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 the status quo and rethink and redesign and reorient your church to the fulfillment of mission, to people and not programs, right? To, to relationships and not buildings, because the light is going to be out. The daylight's going to be out. And when the night comes, whatever that is and whatever that means, only Jesus knows. But when the night comes where we cannot work or do the work to the degree that we can do it when the day is out, I want to be able to look back. And I want all of our churches to be able to look back and say, yeah, we, we took advantage to the best of our ability when the light was out. Because when it's not out and you're doing your absolute best, and we'll always do our absolute best, but when you're doing your absolute best and you're killing yourself to try and you know, find a way to connect with people and do something meaningful, you realize like, oh man, so many good opportunities that we had. But you know, we don't need to beat ourselves up. We just need to look to the future and be like, okay, well, here's the best we're doing now. You know, we're connecting with people. We're putting up um, you know, Zoom groups. And you know, like, don't have Zoom groups that are just Bible study. You know, like I, I was talking to a guy recently. Like, he's got Zoom group at his church that's just Bible, uh, a book club. You know, and so what they're doing is they're reading through books that aren't necessarily religious, but they have to do with health and, you know, mental health or physical health. And then through those sort of like um, broad conversations, they can then, you know, sort of bring in the spiritual and, and bite sizes and connect with people that way. Um, so there's all these different options that we can do, but we all recognize that when when incarnational ministry is possible, there's just nothing like it. And so, yeah, that, I guess that's my long-winded way of saying when this thing is over, don't just go back to status quo, you know, like reorient your church experience. To borrow the language from our conversation today, design your church, redesign your church so that your church as a whole is an, is, is an agent of reversal in your community. You know, like what, what, how is suffering being reversed because your church is there? You know, like what, what, is, what is the tangible difference that's being made because you exist in that space, you know? Um, and yeah, I can go on and on about that, but I think that's a good question too. Yeah, I think we're getting close to the hour marker here. So uh, I think uh, maybe, maybe our last question here, um, second last question at least. Yeah, how, how are you seeing this whole way of thinking affecting your spiritual life? Uh, so it looks like you're applying this whole model of uh, relieving suffering um, mm. And so how has it affected you personally? You know, how has it, has it made you flourish? Has it mm. changed how you think about things in general, about ministry? You know, how has it affected you? Yeah, definitely. So in a very real sense, one of, the, one of the key things that has been sort of unfolding in my life for the last few years has been the question of how we can reach secular people the question of how we can connect with them and help them to understand Christ and the gospel in, in, in meaningful ways, in ways that make sense to them. And so as I've navigated this whole idea of the reversal of suffering, one of the things that I've committed myself more deeply to is to that particular mission, because it's so easy as Christians to say, hey, look, um, here is my, especially as a pastor, right? Here is my role as a pastor. Here is my job as a pastor. And I'm going to sort of tick the boxes, you know, do the activities that I'm required to do as a pastor. 
and then just call it a day. And essentially what that means, if you take that really seriously, is your entire life basically revolves around church people. And that's it. <laughs> you know, you, you lose touch with the general community. You lose touch with, with anyone. If you're not careful, you end up with only Adventist people around you. And if you meet someone who's not Adventist, it's just because a family member at church brought their friend or, or their family member who's not Adventist and you got to meet them that way, you know. But if you're not careful, if you're not intentional, you just end up surrounded by people in your church and you're not actually making a difference, inhabiting or incarnating with others. So for me, that's the main thing, you know, like it's, it's reaching out and saying, all right, like how can I actually incarnate with people and be really intentional about journeying with people. And that means studying the way they think, um, like really immersing myself in the way in which they see reality, the, the songs they listen to, the shows they watch. You know, obviously I'm not gonna go overboard and watch like uber disgusting things, but you know, it's, it's, it's to the point of like really, really incarnating. And, and for me, that's, that's my main thing is like, how can I really incarnate with people and learn to see the world they, the way they see it. Not as, hey, I'm going to figure out how you guys think so that I can develop arguments to show you why you're wrong. No, right. it's more of, I want to see how you think so I can appreciate it, right? So I can actually get a taste of it and really understand your heart. And then once I really understand your heart, then now we can actually have a synchronicity, right? Now we can mm -hmm. actually have a conversation. We can dance, you know, where, where you can bring your perspective and I can bring mine and we can share together and navigate that reality together. And it's been an absolute blast. I mean, look, like studying the Bible with studying the Bible with homosexuals, studying the Bible with like crazy full on postmoderns, you know, with, with secular people who've never, ever been to church before. And when I say studying the Bible, I don't necessarily mean we're always sitting there with the Bible open. Sometimes it's just, a, yeah. you know, like a, a, a friendly conversation that we're having, where we're connecting together. Um, but essentially like for me, that's like, yeah, that's the mission, you know, and, and it's different for each of us. Like we all have a different way in which God has gifted us through which we can step out into the world and bring, and, and bring this reversal of suffering into effect. And like I said, it doesn't always have to be dramatic. Like people hear terms like reversal of suffering. They think, oh man, I got to go be Mother Teresa and like have an orphanage in Africa and stuff. And it's like, no, not necessarily. You can reverse suffering just by the way you parent your kids. By, by orienting it in a direction that is, you know, maybe more nurturing or, you know, like, and I talk to parents at times and they're like, oh, I don't know, you know, and I'm a parent too. And obviously my wife and I, we have two kids and there's a, there's a sense in which when you become a parent, you almost feel like, well, there goes my ability to work for God because all my energy is just trying to stay alive at home. And it's like, well, who, who said that that's not your mission field? You know, like, why do you always have to be out there doing something dramatic? Why can't your mission field, your calling in life be sitting down with two, three kids in a living room and pouring love into them and nurturing them, you know, to, 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 to be beautiful people in society. You know, so this, it's just, it's so diverse. And I don't think there's a, there's a formula for it. Like we're all gifted differently. We have different experiences. We occupy different spaces. It's about looking at each of those spaces and saying, okay, Lord, here's my space. Maybe it's a huge one. Maybe you're like a public speaker and you got like a massive following. You're an influencer, or maybe it's a tiny one. And the only people in this world who know your name are your own kids, right? But whatever your space is, how do you bring beauty into that space? How do you reverse suffering in that space? And I think if we all oriented our lives in that direction, we're fulfilling the call that God has placed on us. Some of us will do it in more dramatic ways, others in more quiet ways. And that's, that's the way it's designed. I think that's the way it's intended to be. So I don't know if that answers your question. Um, but in short, it's immersing myself deeply 
into secular culture with friendships with, you know, which is the thing I miss the most right now, you know, being stuck yeah, at home all the time, definitely. But, you know, with friendships and incarnation and really listening to their hearts and understanding who they are and finding ways to communicate Christ to them. Um, that is the sense in which God has really, that, that's the, that's the passion that God has really placed on my heart. Um, that I, that I've just like fully immersed myself in. Well, Marcos, I want to thank you for joining me today. And if you could sum up the gospel in one sentence, how would you communicate it? <laughs> oh man, I love this question. Cause how do you sum up the gospel in one sentence? Hey, it's, it's so radical. Um, if I could sum it up in one sentence, I, I would say that the gospel to me is the radical revelation. The gospel to me is the radical revelation that God is restoring all things back to his heart. That's the gospel to me. Everything. God is restoring all things back to his heart. And yeah, oh man, but you know, like I could talk about that for hours <laughs> and what I mean by that, but we're not going to do that. <laughs> no, we, we're going to let our listeners go. So I just want to thank yeah, you yeah. <laughs> again for coming on today. And uh, yeah, tell people all about where they can find you, find your information and uh, find, your, find your book. Sure. Yeah. So um, I, you can find me at thestorychurchproject.com. So the story church project, all one, one word, uh, the story church project.com. And once you get there, I've got podcasts, the story church podcast blogs, um, and a store. So I've got all my eBooks on a store. And actually for those of you who are listening, Andrew and I are actually working on a project right now. Yeah. So I've written a Bible study set for studying the Bible with seculars. It's actually a set that I wrote myself that I've been using for the last five years. Um, and it's specifically designed for interacting with the narrative of scripture with secular people. Um, and so Andrew and I are currently working on that, but Andrew's got to eat. So I got to pay this guy. So what I've done is I've actually taken all of my eBooks. I've put them into one package um, and I'm selling them. You know, it's four eBooks for $14.99. So it's like a super sweet deal. That this is a good the deal. Yeah. On the investigative judgment um, and uh, three other eBooks that I've written. You can get all the information there. Um, but basically anytime we sell one of those, that money goes toward um, paying Andrew. So Andrew can make super awesome Bible study set that we can publish someday. Um, so yeah, look, if you want to help out, get that Bible study set out there and also, you know, read something that you might find really enlightening, just head over to storychurchproject.com and you can check it out in the store. If not, you know, feel free to connect with me anyway. Um, all my links are there for Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. So yeah. All right. Well, Hey, it's been a pleasure to have you and I can't wait to have you on again. Sweet, man. Same sounds awesome. And uh, I'm going to have you on the Story Church podcast as well. So. Okay. All right. Well, my name's Andrew. Uh, God bless. Till next time, everybody. <laughs>